Future Proof Extra from News Talk. It might just be species wide hubris, but you'd have to say there's something pretty special about us humans, right? We've mapped the genome, we fire ourselves into space every now and again, and we've managed to become the undisputed masters of our planet. But how? What is it about this hairless ape that fundamentally sets us apart? And are we really that special? Adam Rutherford is a scientist, broadcaster and author of The Book of Humans, the story of how we became us. He joins me now. Uh, welcome to the programme, Adam. Hello, uh, Jonathan. It seems to me that the premise of this is that we're not, we're, all, we're not all that as human beings. And actually, th- th- for every great thing a human can do, an animal can do it better. Sort of. But it's, it's more just sort of exploring the question of, well, are we all that? Because I do... Th- I, I'm, I'm a humanist. I believe in, in the amazingness of humans. But at the same time, it's a challenge to the notion of human exceptionalism. That's the, the, the powers that we have, are, are they significantly, are they qualitatively different from uh, other behaviours that we see in the animal kingdom? And, and the key question, as you just said, is, well, if that is the case, how did it happen? So we're sort of given this exalted status uh, as the paragon of animals, as, as Hamlet says, and you, you start, start the book kind of quoting him, uh, because of various things. And, and one of those is sort of tool use. And of course, we've talked about tool use in the program before, but th- there's lots of different unusual examples of tool use uh, throughout the animal kingdom, including dolphins uh, who sponge yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I'm trying to, you know, address the question of our our ability to use tools is is well, it's it's magnificent, and and we've been obligate tool users for several million years now. So the question then becomes, well, is that the thing, or is there a thing which is qualitatively and categorically different from the rest of the animal? world and and the answer is quite clearly no at least nine different classes of animals use use tools and and the one that is well one of the most striking is this pod of dolphins bottlenose dolphins that uh, live in shark bay in australia and a few years ago it was noticed that some of them a proportion of them they were sort of nerdling a sponge onto their beak the, the rostrum it's called and we didn't really know why. And then they began to see that what they were doing was they were using the sponge to protect their beaks from when they were foraging for food at the bottom of the sea. The seabed is craggy and they're eating things like lobsters and crabs, which are craggy as well. Um, so they were using, I mean, amazing behavior in itself. One animal using a second animal to eat a third animal, which I think is unprecedented. <laughs> um, and then there's the, the, uh, another layer of intrigue on top of that was that it turned out after they started sampling the the genes sampling the dna of these dolphins that only the females were doing this and that they weren't particularly closely related so the males aren't doing this the females are and it's clearly not a, a directly genetically inherited characteristic which means it must be being taught or culturally passed on but just within females and even within that it becomes more interesting because we can tell from the pattern of distribution of the behavior in females that there was an originator of this behaviour, sponging, uh, that was probably six generations ago, so middle of the 19th century, there was an individual, a female, who started this, who innovated this behaviour, and we call her Sponging Eve. Uh, you know, this actually does happen a bit. I, I want to talk about Julie, the fashion chimp, in a bit, with this idea that one animal can kind of start a trend. Uh, but th- there is other um, evidence of, of tool use, which I hadn't heard before, and that was of primates using plumb lines. Yep, yep, yep. So um, using using sticks effectively to uh, test the depth of water when they can't see the bottom because, you know, if, if it's not flat and they're wading through water and they and um, gorillas, orangutans and chimpanzees and other other primates are 
um, they're not habitual by uh, habitually bipedal, so they you know they knuckle walk a lot of the time, and you can't do that if you're going through water because it means your head's going to be below the surface. So we've got plenty of evidence of of gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans using sticks to to test the depth of the water as they're proceeding forward. They, they sticks are the most available. Um, potential tools for for many animals and and it turns out that higher primates uh, particularly the great apes use sticks in all sorts of different ways what what, another striking example is the um the fongoli chimpanzee so these are chimpanzees in senegal who will take a very specific type of stick sort of three feet long strip all the um the, the twigs from the side with their teeth and sharpen it into the point and they use that to kebab bush babies so bush babies are they, they tend to sleep during the day they're nocturnal and they sleep in hollowed out trees and if you start ripping off the bark of a tree to 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 get at um a bush baby then it's likely to hear it and scarper away so they get these sticks and they they you know they they jam them through the through the hole and then eat the bush babies off the uh, off the stick which Ugh. is it's quite dramatic <laughs> and quite brutal but you know as i say in the book nature doesn't really care what you think no, indeed. Um, so uh, people have heard tool use uh, examples, uh, you know, across many different um, animal domains. But uh, fashion is not something that we would associate. We sort of think of fashion as being a purely human um, pursuit. But but I was really intrigued by the example of of Julie, the fashion chimp. Right, right. So pretty much, I think I'm right in saying that Julie is maybe the only example we're aware of of what can possibly be described as a fashion in contrast to as you're saying adornments that are used as part of um uh, what well, mostly you know by males to attract females or to compete with other males which is a sort of standard part of sexual selection mm. um but yeah back in a few years ago and i think i think it was 2007 julie was part of a, a troop of chimps that were being observed uh, over a long-term project and it, she, one morning she picked up a stiff twig blade of grass and stuck it in her left ear which is an odd an odd thing to do um but what followed was that her closest friends and familial members you know it should be pointed out that julie was the name given to her by the researchers who knows what what she was actually called but her son who was called jack and her best friend who was called kathy um, also started wearing a blade of grass in their in their left ear and over the course of a few months it was noted that um, the majority of tr- chimps within this immediate troop had adopted this behavior which is weird why you know it has no evolutionary uh, obvious benefit it is, this is not a sexually selected characteristic like a sort of peacock's tail or a bowbird's bow or anything like that uh, now, Julie died in 2012, but the last observations showed that two neighbouring chimp troops that aren't genetically related, don't really interact very well with Julie's troop, they also had been observed wearing sticks out of their <laughs> left ear. And and it's very difficult to assess that, that as being anything other than what we describe as fashion. So in-group, out-group, this is a behaviour which seems to resonate within certain members of, of this particular uh, p- particular group of chimpanzees to the extent that they all started doing it which is well it's just awesome really 
So, uh, obviously, it's an Adam Rutherford book, so you're going to spend an inordinate amount, almost a disturbing amount of, of the, the book talking about sex um, in animals <laughs> for some weird reason. Uh, but it, it is actually, I mean, it is such a fascinating thing. Whenever I get on, I'm like, let's talk about this for three hours. Um, the, there are, there are I suppose, sexual acts which we would associate um, often only with with humans. We imagine in the animal kingdom that... Um, that animals just have sex to, to procreate or to mate and, and pass on their genes, right? And and we're aware of bonobos uh, who have sex for, it seems, to, to just say hello. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, in your book, you kind of show a range of different sort of sexual activities that we would assume would have been, uh, you know, re- re- preserved for human beings, but it turns out aren't. Be careful yeah. now, because this is a radio show. And it's, and it's, it's lunchtime-ish, yes. isn't it? Um, quite well. This is just biology, but it was, and of course, evolutionary biologists are obsessed with sex. Um, so I make no apologies there. Um, but I, I was, I, I sort of set this up as, um, well, if an alien came to observe us on Earth, then it wouldn't take long for them to spot that we spend an enormous amount of time and energy and resources trying to have sexual encounters with other members of of the same species. And so the next question will be, well, what is the purpose of of that? And and you, my, my um, fictional alien is not a sexual being, so doesn't know that sex is for reproduction, which is what we learn at school. I, I, I figure that um, that alien would possibly never work out that the purpose of, of all this sexual activity in humans is actually to make small humans. Yeah. Because it, when you start looking at the numbers, less than... One in a thousand sexual encounters that could result in a pregnancy actually does. <laughs> and if you then pile on top of that all of the other sexual behaviors that humans enjoy, uh, which can't result in a in a pregnancy, then the primary purpose of sex is utterly dwarfed by the amount of sex that we actually have. So then I, th- I figured, well, okay, well, is that the thing? Is that us, right? Have we successfully decoupled reproduction from sex? And is that a uniquely human characteristic? And the answer turns out to be a magnificent no. There is tons of non-reproductive sex in the animal kingdom, a lot of which are behaviours that look uh, familiar to us. Mm. Um, and Do you want to give it, us an it, example, it, um, Dr. Adam Rutherford? <laughs> yes, yes, I can. I can give you many examples. It's just it's fascinating because we, we get I think we get, you know, so familiarized with um, the wonder of, of animal behavior through programs like, you know, David Attenborough, of course, but which, which sometimes avoid the more nitty gritty aspects of, of the sexual behavior of animals. So, for mm. example, well, um, some of the behaviors we truly understand because they fit into evolutionary paradigms as we as we see them. So here's an example. Do you remember in Blue Planet 2 last year, there was the amazing marine iguanas in Galapagos where they were being pursued by snakes across this sort of volcanic plain. It was, you know, incredibly dramatic and really cool. I footage. do. I've seen them and they're creepy up close. Um, right. OK. They're, they're really a bit gross. To be well, they're a bit they're a bit they creepy when you, when, when you hear the, uh, the what, what they get up to. So. Those marine iguanas, the females are only fertile and estrus for about one day per year. Wow. And the the male society is heavily stratified by size. So you have alpha males, which are bigger than smaller males. Now, weirdly, it takes pretty much exactly three minutes for a marine iguana to ejaculate. So during that day when the females are, are fertile... Um, there's strong competition to get three minutes worth of access, as it were. <laughs> but the smaller males, if they if they mount the, the, the females, then they, they just get 
are removed, physically removed by the bigger males and, and they don't get their three minutes. So they don't get to ejaculate, they don't get to reproduce. So they've evolved this other strategy, which is that they masturbate before they mount the females and then they store the sperm, little spermatophore it's called, in a little package, a little sort of pocket on, on their bodies. They mount the females. They don't need three minutes because they can just deliver the package and then the bigger male comes along and rips them off the back and... Uh, uh, and Bob's your uncle, as it were. So the, the here is a strategy which involves masturbation before sex. Contrast that with the Cape ground squirrel, which is a squirrel in, in uh, primarily in South Africa. They, they are incredibly promiscuous. So they have sex a lot with a lot of different um, males and females in both directions. Now, males... They they tend to masturbate after they've had sex, and we think this is a, a, a sort of a, a prophylactic for sexually transmitted diseases because they're so promiscuous. Chlamydia is sort of you know um, a major STD in, in Cape Crown squirrel population. <laughs> You're kidding? No, no, it's worse in bats. Chlamydia is everywhere in bats, and they're also quite um, quite sexually promiscuous. Oh, I can't believe I'm talking about this. <laughs> yes, uh, you can. You're like, oh, I radio. love this. <laughs> so, okay, let, so moving away, like, so, so, uh, you, you know, the first part of your book should, sort of shows that, um, uh, in terms of uh, sex, in terms of tool use, in terms of um, lots of other um, sort of behaviours, these are not um, the preserve of the humans. But there, there must be some things that do set us apart um, to to earn Hamlet's title as the paragon of animals. I mean, we think of, uh, you know, our ability to, to to think about the future, counting. Um, our ability to process language in a much more complex way. So there are some things which are definitely on a sort of continuum of behaviour. So some animals can count. Well, you know, some some chicks appear to be able to count sequentially and they do seem to do it left to right. Not quite sure why or how. Um, but obviously our mathematical skills are, are, you know, orders of magnitude better than just being able to count. Language, communication, this is one that many people have argued over the years is is qualitatively different. And I think that probably is the case. On the other hand, maybe we're just not listening out. Right, you know, we, we, we only discovered that elephants communicate in the infrasonic range in the 1980s, 1990s. And they just communicate over very long distances through the ground and, and we just couldn't hear them. So... Uh, I think there are some things like communication where it does you know, strong evidence that we are just qualitatively different in terms of our communications. But I still want to sort of rein it back a little bit and say, well, maybe we just don't know what they're saying or how to listen to them yet. Is the book um, sort of a celebration of of animals, uh, or, or are you trying to get people to think about um, conservation or our own reflection upon ourselves as being so fantastic yeah, I, I think I, I I think I'm sort of celebrating the that paradox that is is first sort of scientifically described in by Darwin in the descent of man who who says um, you know that we have godlike intellect and 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 yet at the same time describing his our um, our own evolution he says that we still bear um, the, the stamp of our low, the indelible stamp of our lowly origin. Yeah, beautiful Darwinian phrase mm. that. And as you said, actually Hamlet nails it 250 years before Darwin that we are the paragon of animals. We, you know, we have we have in apprehension like angels and so on. But he goes on to say after that, but but what is this quintessence of dust? You know, we we are merely matter. We're we're not 
we're not qualitatively different in terms of our biology from bacteria or cats or you know anything we've got the same dna the same cell structure the same metabolic processes and and we fit on on the evolutionary tree of life perfectly and yet we are measurably wonderful and we have godlike intellect and godlike behavior so i think it's not i i, I want to be able to do both things which is to say we are definitely special we are a special animal but at exactly the same time we are an animal and so i, I want to be able to celebrate the, the the natural world that doesn't include us and include us in the natural world and at the same time point out that humans are astonishing beings well, uh, the book is called The Book of Humans. It, it is your must-have book if you are a pervert and love animal sex. But also, it has just amazingly fascinating anecdotes about human behavior, animal behavior, comparisons, with lots of great science in it. It's a really great read. And it's not its not overly technical. It's just you are quite a good writer, uh, uh, Adam Rutherford, I have to say. And uh, you are a great ape. So thank you so much for your time. Adam Rutherford, thanks very much. Thank you, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. 